church family, every December, Southern Baptist churches across North America take up together what is known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, named after uh, a faithful missionary to China uh, for many years, gave her life proclaiming the gospel amongst the people of China. The International Mission Board and the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering really speaks to the core of what it means to be a cooperating church with the Southern Baptist Convention. This, while we are an independent, autonomous, local church, and we're going to see the importance of that in our sermon today, we cooperate together with 47,000 other churches for several reasons, the most important being to support the, fully, the, the largest fully funded evangelical mission force the world has ever known, Southern Baptist missionaries living across the world, most of which we will never know. We will never host in our church. We will never hear their stories this side of eternity. We may not know their names. We may not know the work that they are doing, but we are confident in the gospel that they are proclaiming, the churches that they are planting, and how God is using them. And here's the good news of the way that we do missions offerings at Nansman River. We've already collected some $20,000 or so for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering because as you give to our Pray, Send, Go missions offering throughout the year, 30% of that goes uh, into a fund, and at the end of the year, we send that to the IMB as our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So if you're giving to Pray, Send, Go, you're already giving to Lottie Moon. But I would challenge you this December to consider how the Lord has blessed you and, how, and your family and how you and your family could in turn give above and beyond your regular tithes and offerings to our church, your regular giving to Praise and Go Missions Offering, to give a special gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering to ensure that our missionaries are able to stay on the field doing the incredible work of proclaiming the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. You can do that through our online giving platform. There's IMB Lottie Moon Christmas Offering envelopes on the back table. Um, and you could uh, just write on a check, Lottie Moon, uh, and we will make sure that it gets to the right place. Thank you, Nansman River, for so faithfully supporting our international missionaries. If you would like to pray together with other Southern Baptist churches, this week is uh, our week of prayer for international missions, and there are prayer guides at the information desk uh, in the lobby. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning, we're going to move really into Paul's second section of uh, this his letter to the church at Corinth, and we're going to consider this entire chapter together this morning, so we better get started. I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. I'll read these 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 5 for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of our brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful this morning for the gathered body of saints that is Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you, God, for our time of worship, corporate scripture reading, of prayer, of encouragement. We thank you, God, for the truth of your word. We recognize that this is a difficult passage. It is one that will cut our hearts deeply as your word does, as it pierces both flesh and bone. But we pray, God, for your help. We pray, God, that in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would convict us of our sin, that you would help us to be right in your eyes. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness that you show to us through the truth of your scripture. Let us know it and believe it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you may be seated. As I said at the outset, we're really moving into Paul's second section of 1 Corinthians where he begins to address either things that he had heard other than their disunity. And if you will remember, there, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, there was a report brought back uh, from Corinth to Ephesus about what's happening in the church, and Paul was very dismayed over it. And so he's written the first four chapters really addressing their, their disunity and now he moves into two areas. One are additional things that he's heard, and two are questions that they have sent with that messenger. Because Paul had written a previous letter when I introduced this series, I told you. It's actually the second letter that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. The first is lost to us. And so they, they have written back in response, and what we're going to see kind of week after week is Paul's either going to address things that he heard about them or questions that they have based off of the instructions that he's given to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is known as the chapter about church discipline, and we are going to focus on church discipline this morning, even though uh, I will say church discipline, I don't think, is really the primary theme of what's happening here. Church discipline is the action that the church is called to. The theme of 1 Corinthians 5 is corporate holiness. That's why I've entitled this sermon, Corporate Holiness Matters. That, that how we embrace obedience to Christ and the call to holiness, not only in our own lives, but as we gather together, as we serve together as this local body, it matters that we hold one another to a standard of Christian holiness. You see, church, the things that we do as a congregation, we do on purpose. 
We do them because, yes, the, the Bible tells us to do them, and that is enough. If the Bible tells us to do something, as a church that believes in the Bible, we simply do it. We obey what the Scriptures tell us to do. But fortunately, the Scriptures do not leave us guessing as to why the church is supposed to do the many things we're instructed in the Scriptures to do. For instance, among other things, we baptize to demonstrate a person's shared identity in the death of Christ and the new life that they have in him. We take the Lord's Supper to proclaim Christ's death until he returns. We gather on the Lord's Day weekly to corporately read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and preach the Bible because through God's word, sinners are called to repentance and the church is sanctified. All of these things the Bible tells us to do and tells us why we are supposed to do them. The, church also, the Bible also tells us that we are supposed to practice church discipline, but it doesn't tell us just to practice church discipline and we simply obey that blindly. It tells us why the church practices church discipline in order to guard corporate holiness. This is the main idea of our sermon today, that local congregations guard their corporate holiness by practicing biblical church discipline. What we're going to see Paul outline for us here in 1 Corinthians 5 is not only a call to action, but it is a reason. Paul reasons for the church at Corinth, and because it is included in Scripture, reasons for Nansman River Baptist Church, who is dedicated to obeying the Scriptures, why we would do such a difficult thing as to expel a member from amongst us. So we begin with Paul's instruction. It's a very basic instruction where he clearly lays out the situation and provides for the church the necessary response. In verses 1 and the first part of 2, where Paul is going to say that egregious unrepentant sin within the church should cause us to mourn and move us to action. That when within the membership of the local church, There is a member who is committing and continuing to commit, egregious, meaning it rises to a level of of significance to the point where we must deal with it, and they are unrepentant, meaning that they see no fault in their actions. They are unwilling to turn from their sin. That we should, as a congregation, mourn this, but also take action. Look at verses 1 and the first part of 2. Paul says that it's actually reported So this is the report that's coming back to him, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now let me just quickly address what's happening here and address what's coming when we get to the end of chapter six and and chapter seven. Here in chapter 5, in the latter part of chapter 6, and in chapter 7, Paul is going to address sexual immorality. I am not going to address sexual immorality today. Some of you have your children sitting next to you, and you're grateful for that. Um, I am going to address it in much more detail when we get to the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. That is going to be the first two weeks of January. So I'm giving you plenty of warning, plenty of opportunity to have discussions at home. And 
We are going to open our children's, our children's church, our kids' church who leave, first, second, and third graders. We're going to open that to fourth and fifth graders for parents that would choose to do so. You're going to be free to have your kids in here the first two weeks of January, as always. But you need to know, I'm going to explain what that means, what sexual immorality means, in some detail, because Paul explains it in some detail when we get to those sections. But for here, I'm able to do this in a rather PG manner. This is a man within the church. This is what's being described here. A man within the church has married his stepmother. That's the situation. It does not seem as if she is in the church. It seems that he has married an unbeliever. Now, he is professing to be a believer, but I think what we read in this scripture is that he's not. That's the position I'm going to take when we get further into this. But that this is a man who has married, he has professed faith, but has taken as a wife not his mother, but his father's wife. So it seems as if his mother has passed, his father remarried, his father passed, and he has now taken his father's wife to be his own. That this is the situation. This is, what the, this is what's happening in the church. And Paul then is going to describe two necessary responses. The first of which, he says in verse 2, you ought to mourn. That this is, this is what we ought to do. Now, why would this level of egregious sin cause the church to mourn? Well, it's because this type of sin, this rises to the level that both Jews and Gentiles would have considered this egregious. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, and we're going to look at several things in the Old Testament uh, today that are going to help us see the mindset from which Paul is writing to this primarily Gentile church. In Deuteronomy 22 verse 30, we read in the law, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Meaning that the actions of this man within the church break the Old Testament law. So this would have been considered sinful for Jewish people. But Paul makes sure that he points out in verse 1 that this kind of sin is not even tolerated among pagans. Paul says that there is a sin so egregious within the local church that Hebrews on one side and even pagan Gentiles on the other would both look at this and be like, what in the world are you people doing? that this would not have been embraced by either Israel or Rome. So it is an egregious sin, and it is an unrepentant sin. And we see that not only here, but in the context of what follows, is this guy is is, is being confronted and yet is not repenting of it. And it seems as if Paul is having to do the confrontation because the church themselves are unwilling to do it. They're allowing this man to continue in this sin. But sin like this within the church should not cause us to be arrogant, which is what the church at Corinth was. They, they just assumed this was somehow okay within the freedom or the bounds of freedom that we have in Christ. Paul says, no, you shouldn't be arrogant about your freedom in Christ. You should rather mourn because of the level of sin, the nature of sin that you've allowed to remain in your midst. Mourning over sin, both personal and corporate should be a posture of God's church. For instance, let's consider what the apostle James writes in James chapter four. 
He calls that church. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, we can't look the other way at egregious sin in our midst. We can't give in to cultural pressures of affirmation of, of personal choices that people make. The church of God is expected to stand on the truth of God and say sin is sin. Even when it's in our midst, even when it's committed by those closest to us and our posture. When sin finds its way into the local church should not be one of arrogance, which was the posture of the church at Corinth, but it should be one of mourning. We should be wretched and mourn and weep. Our laughter should turn to mourning and our joy should turn to gloom. When we see someone who we have named as a fellow brother or sister in Christ embrace such an awful lifestyle, a lifestyle of sin and a lifestyle of unrighteousness before the Lord. And this is Paul's intention of writing this section of 1 Corinthians. It's not the only part of 1 Corinthians that he writes with this level of confrontation. And in his next letter to this church, he reminds them of this, and it's going to help us to understand his purpose of writing here if we consider what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 8, Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I, did, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians, and he says, yeah, I wrote a really harsh letter to you so that you would actually grieve, so that you would mourn, so that your arrogance would turn into to mourning. And it seems as if this isn't the only place that we'll see this in 2 Corinthians. It seems as if Paul's letter had the desired effect. His intention was to bring about this kind of godly grief in their lives that would draw them to repentance. And so the church is supposed to mourn. And then in the second part of verse 2, Paul calls the church to action. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, folks, this is exceedingly and abundantly clear. There's no wiggle room here, is there? I mean, this is a direct command from the Apostle Paul to the church that he has planted, writing to them with the authority of Christ. And he says, for the first of what will be six times in these 13 verses, where Paul will either directly say or will illustrate the necessity of the removal of this man from amongst them. The remedy is clear. Remove him. He's going to tell them how to do it in a minute, but remove them. Now, is the question that we have to ask, is Paul standing alone in this? Because it seems as if Corinth was fine with the man being in their midst. 
And if we were to just be honest about the state of the church in the 21st century, many places that, that claim the name of Christ are just fine with sin, egregious sin even, being in their midst unrepentantly. And so is Paul standing alone when he instructs the church at Corinth and through the word instructs modern churches to remove someone like this? Well, no. Paul is actually following, following the instructions of our Lord in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells his disciples this. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus is promising he's going to be in the midst of the local church as they deal with corporate holiness, as they deal with sin. And he gives the church, as we saw a few weeks ago in our excursus on church membership, that's why I wanted to deal with that before we dealt with this, that Paul, or Jesus gives instructions to the local church of how they're supposed to deal with this. And he gives authority to the gathered body of saints. Not to some magisterium somewhere, but to you, the members of the church, to deal with the matter of sin, particularly egregious, unrepentant sin, in your midst. This is how the church exercises the keys to the kingdom that Christ has entrusted to the local body. That if someone is unrepentant of their sin, that we would, as in the words of Christ, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning that we would put them outside of the assembly and that Christ is present with us as we make those difficult choices. So we grieve and we act. This is just in two verses, Paul's given us our instructions. These are our marching orders in scripture. When we find egregious unrepentant sin in our midst, it calls us to, it calls us to grieve, but then it also calls us to action. But then he's going to explain to us why. We're going to see that in two parts. The first is this. Church discipline is a gospel-proclaiming act of corporate love towards the one in sin. Church discipline is a gospel-proclaiming act of corporate love towards the one in sin. Listen to verses 3 through 5. But though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. This is very similar to what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 18, isn't it? where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm among you. I'm going to explain why Paul would say something similar. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now let's just consider verse three first, where Paul says that he's present in the spirit. He's saying two things. First, you don't have to wait for me to get there. Paul's coming to Corinth. He says, you don't have to wait for me to get there. Why is that important? It's, it's incredibly important for the local church. Because here's what he's saying. You, 
the local church, you, Corinth, you, Nansman River Baptist Church, have not only the responsibility to act, but you have the authority to act, and you don't have to wait on me. I'm with you in spirit. How is he with them in spirit? Well, he's written to them. He's instructed them to do this. This isn't to be read in some mystic way where when they actually gather, Paul's spirit goes to be with them. It's an affirmation that the Holy Spirit is present in that local church, whether an apostle is physically present or not, that the church is supposed to act because they have the authority in Christ to do so. And then in verses four and five, he gives the instructions of how to do this. He says, when you assemble, when you gather together, which is what the church is, the church is an assembly. When you assemble together in the name of our Lord Jesus, my spirit is present, you are to then act. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, instead of repeating, put him out of the church, Instead of saying what he's already said, Paul's going to explain to us what they're supposed to do by telling them why they're supposed to do it. And this is admittedly, verse 5, is difficult language. And, and it's led to a few, a varied, uh, a few various interpretations of, of what this means. I'm going to tell you what I think is the simplest understanding here. That to deliver to Satan means to turn out to the world means that, that we see the church as the dominion of Christ and the world as the dominion of Satan and that while we live in this now and not yet period, while the enemies of Christ are being made into his footstool, we can still view Satan as the prince of the power of the air in the world and Christ as the head of the church. And so to deliver someone to Satan would simply be to put them out of the church, to make them no longer a member of the local body. And then he says, for the destruction of the flesh. Now, destruction of the flesh has some similarities with a warning Paul has already given in 1 Corinthians 3 about the local congregation, the assembly, as the temple of God, where we read this in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And these are plural yous, the congregation. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So it's a reminder. Paul's language here is a reminder that by allowing egregious sin into, the, into our midst, what we're doing is we're allowing the destruction of the temple itself. And so Paul says it's better if you put this man out into the world, even if his flesh is destroyed, even if it kills him. It's better for him to be out there than for the whole temple to be defiled. But then he says this, and there's great hope in this last phrase, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says, by doing this, you are proclaiming the gospel to him in hopes that he will see the truth of his sin and repent. Now, I don't read these verses as a guarantee. I also don't read these verses as if somehow affirming that this man has a legitimate testimony of faith. We wouldn't put someone out of the church who has a legitimate testimony of faith. I think what Paul is saying is that while this man has professed Christ, there is no evidence in the way that he's living. There's no evidence in his, his unrepentant nature that he has actually been born again. So put him out of the church and here's why we do this. We do this in hopes that 
church discipline will get his attention in hopes that by now allowing him to just sit in our midst that he somehow affirmed in his sin. Church discipline is actually the most loving thing. Hear me on this. Church discipline is the most loving thing that a church can do to someone who has remained in egregious, unrepentant sin. Because to allow them to remain in our midst not only threatens the holiness of the local church, but it reassures them of a salvation that they very likely do not possess. Now, let's just think about what this means for us today. To be, quote unquote, unloving in today's world is maybe the greatest fault one can have in the eyes of our culture. Our culture defines what love is, and then to say to not embrace our understanding of love is the greatest fault a person or a group of people can have. However, while they say to love you must affirm, and affirmation now goes to the deepest levels of depravity, what the Bible says is what real love is is to look a brother or sister, look a person in the eyes and say, you cannot serve Christ and do what you are doing. You cannot name the name of Christ and continue in this sin. To allow someone to believe that they are okay in their sin is actually the polar opposite of biblical love. So when Paul says, turn this guy out to the world, so that in the day of the Lord, his soul will be saved. He's saying this because we proclaim the gospel in love when we say, my friend, you cannot live this way. And if you will not repent, then we have nothing else to do but to turn you out into the world. Church discipline is loving gospel proclamation. And hear me on this. This is super important. It works. It actually works. You say, well, how do we know that it works? Because the Bible tells us it works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and, and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Now, there are some scholars that think that the hymn of 2 Corinthians 2 is the hymn of 1 Corinthians 5. Some think that the hymn of 2 Corinthians 2 is actually the leader of the people, the group of people in Corinth that were that were in opposition to Paul's authority. But here's the deal. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's the person in 1 Corinthians 5 or if it doesn't matter if it's the person in opposition to Paul because the result is, is the same. The majority, the congregation, took action. It seems as if Paul's letter actually called them to action and they practiced church discipline, probably against multiple people in the congregation. And at least one of them repented. At least one of them saw the error of his ways. At least one of them, Paul is saying, forgive and comfort him. Reaffirm your love for him. The result of church discipline, the desired result, let me say this correctly, the desired result of church discipline should always be restoration. When the church has to make the difficult decision of opening the back door 
and telling someone we have, no oppor- we have no other option than to tell you to leave our midst, we should always, always be open to them walking back in through the proclamation of the gospel. If they believe and repent and seek restoration within the church, the church should welcome them with open and loving arms because there is no greater picture of the gospel then when the church says we love you, but we can't let you live like this and still be named among us, and they heed that warning even if it takes a period of time, even if it takes years, and sometimes it does. Sometimes someone will sit under this level of church discipline, expulsion from the church for years, but then they will see and know their sin, and they will repent, and they'll come back to the church, and oh, how the church should rejoice. Because the church was faithful to do what the scriptures said they should do. It has resulted in the salvation of a brother and sister in Christ who has now repented. Number three, church discipline is a Christ-honoring act of protection for God's people. Look at verses six through eight. Your boasting is not good. So again, they're arrogant. He's saying, don't be arrogant about this. Why are you arrogant about this? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, it's fascinating to me. Paul's writing to this primarily Gentile congregation, and he uses, he, here in verses 6 through 8, as well as verses 9 through 13, he's going to use some very Hebrew language and some very Israelite ideas. He says he uses a common expression within Israel that a little leaven leavens the whole, whole lump. We would say it like this, one bad apple rots the whole bunch, right? It's the same idea. But by using this, this Hebrew expression and by connecting it to the Passover, even these Gentiles' minds go to the actual Passover feast and the Passover celebration where they're instructed in Exodus chapter 12, where Moses says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, the person shall be cut off from Israel. So there's the chances of being removed from Israel if they eat leaven during these seven days. So what do the people do? They go to great lengths. They remove all of the leaven from their home to ensure that they're not going to eat any leaven. And Paul connects this very Hebrew idea to this Gentile church. And he says, you have to remove the leaven from your home or it will will end up leavening the whole bunch. This isn't a call for the Gentile church to actually observe the Passover festival. It's a reminder that we celebrate Christ as our forever Passover lamb every time we gather. And if we allow egregious sin to remain, our worship then is insincere. So by removing this leaven from our midst, we honor Christ. Now, we have to make note here, this isn't a call to a works-based salvation. This is clearly and fully focused on the work of Christ as our once and for all sacrifice. 
However, it is a reminder of the reality of a truly changed heart and new life that the church is expected to lead in Christ. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. These things go together, that that when we profess faith in Christ, it's evident in our lives. And if it's not evident in our lives, then the best way to see that is through just clear, unrepentant sin in someone's life, then the church has to take action. They have to remove the leaven from their midst. They have to remove the person who is unwilling to submit themselves to Christ, our once and for all Passover lamb. He then continues this same idea. He's very much in Old Testament language as he moves from that section to this next paragraph, starting in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers that are idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Let me just stop here and explain quickly verses 9 and 10. Paul is not calling the church to be reclusive in our faith. He's not calling us to be, I'll just name it. He's not calling us to be like the Amish where we build our own communities far away from everyone. We develop our own practices far away from everyone and we have no real meaningful connection with the lost world. That would be in direct contradiction to the Great Commission. It would be direct contradiction even to the way that Paul himself lived his life. He lived his life moving from one Gentile city to another, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to depraved sinners. And the church is to do that same thing. And so he reminds them when he says, in my previous letter, I wrote to you not to associate with these kind of people. He's saying, he's clarifying. I'm not talking about outside the church. I'm talking about inside the church. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother meaning we've admitted them into the church. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what I have to do with, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, I've told you this is very Hebrew language. This is very Old Testament language. It's important for our understanding of what's being communicated to the New Testament church. You'll notice in verse 13 that purge the evil person from among you is in quotation marks. It's in quotation marks because it's in the Old Testament. It's actually in the Old Testament a lot. It's in the law a lot. It's in the law several times. And what Paul does in those previous verses, verse 11, when he lists for us the sexual immoral, the greedy, the idolaters, the revilers, the drunkards, the swindlers, Paul's actually connecting purge the evil person among you from the areas of the law, the Old Testament law, that dealt with those specific sins. I think this is important enough where I'm actually gonna show you all of the the examples. I'm gonna move quickly through this, okay? Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. This is sexual immorality, purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 24, 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. 
So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the greedy swindler. Purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 17. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told to you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to, be, uh, to put him to death and after the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So that's idolatry. Deuteronomy 19. If a malice witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the, dis- to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has, a, has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he, has, as he has meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the reviler, purge them from your midst. Deuteronomy 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his, of, the, of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and Israel shall hear and fear. Purge the drunkard from among your midst. Purge the evil from your midst. Obviously, there is a pattern here. There is a clear pattern from what Paul quotes from the Old Testament to the sins that were calling Israel to punish by death to, for one specific purpose, to purge the evil from their midst. Now, the church is not called stone people, but the church is called to take someone who is inside of our fellowship and place them outside of the fellowship, to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. It's basically the same thing. As we proclaim the gospel to them in love for this purpose so that we will guard the corporate holiness of our body. This is why it matters. So for instance, the apostle Peter in his letter to the churches in Asia Minor makes very similar connections with different verses from the Old Testament that Paul is making. And this is why it's, it's incredibly important for us to understand this Old Testament connection. For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Citing Leviticus eleven forty four, Paul says this, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So Paul look, or Peter looks at, again, Gentile Christians and says, that Old Testament passage calling the Old Testament people to God of holiness now applies to you, Gentile Christians, local church. Christ called you, he is holy, so you are to be holy. Now make no mistake, we are made positionally holy by Christ and Christ alone, meaning that we are justified before the Father by the death of Christ, our once and for all Passover lamb. You can never make yourself on your own holy enough to please God. That's why Paul calls the law our tutor. The law proved that it was impossible to do so. But 
Those who are in Christ are called to practical holiness because the one who called us is holy. Now, why? Why why are we, the New Testament church of God, called to be holy like the Old Testament people of God? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you, Gentile church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These descriptors that Paul uses in these verses are Old Testament descriptions of Israel that the apostle now applies to the New Testament church. Here's what he says. These things that were true about them are now true about you because there's one people of God. There's those who were saved looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God in Christ the Messiah. And there are those who were saved looking back on the fulfillment of God by sending Christ the Messiah, our once and for all Passover lamb. So we, like they, are called to be holy because he who called us is holy because we are now a holy nation. We are now God's people. We who were not a people are now a people. We who had not received mercy have now received mercy. And because of this, we must take our corporate holiness seriously. And to do that, we must be willing to practice biblical church discipline. So what? Our congregation must stand ready. This local congregation, not Corinth, not the church down the street, Nansman River Baptist Church, must stand ready to guard our corporate holiness by faithfully practicing biblical church discipline in love with the goal of restoration. Now, here's, here's what I'm joyful and grateful for right now, that I'm not having to preach this knowing that there is some instance of egregious, unrepentant sin among our membership. So you, I, I almost led with that, but I wanted it to hang there for the bulk of the sermon and get to it at the end. Here's what I want you to hear, church. I don't know, and our elders don't know, of any unrepentant, egregious sin, any sin rising to the level that's described here in 1 Corinthians 5. Do we all sin? Sure we do. But we don't bring our day-to-day struggles that we are still trying to be sanctified in the power of the Holy Spirit before the church. If we did, that's all we would do every time that we would gather. We would all have to just line up here and the church would have to vote whether our sins this week rise to the level of being put out or not. What's being described here, again, that both Jews and Gentiles would just consider this horrible. And I'm grateful this morning that I'm able to preach this to a congregation that I do believe takes our corporate holiness seriously and, and that we, there is no, at least to my knowledge, public, egregious, unrepentant sin that is, that is currently rising to this level that we would need to deal with this as a congregation. But hear me, we must stand ready to do so, to grieve in our hearts if a brother or sister is living in this kind of sin and is unrepentant and be willing to say, you are no longer a part of us. We are going to turn you out into this world in hopes that you will see your sin and repent and turn to Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter six, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Our goal is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in love 
with the hope of restoring any of those who we would have to put through church discipline for the purpose of guarding our holiness, of guarding that which Christ has called us to be, the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you guard our hearts, how you have guarded our steps and our words Because without that guarding, without the Holy Spirit working in our lives, the the, the egregious sin that this man fell into those millennia ago, we would fall into as well. And if not the same sin, something just as egregious. But by the power of Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives, you have guarded your church. You have guarded our holiness. You have made us holy before God in our justification. And you have provided for us the Holy Spirit to continue to to make us practically holy in our sanctification. But God, would you guard us from the arrogance of thinking this could never happen here? Would you guard us from our boasting and thinking that, that our brothers and sisters in this room would never fall into such a sin? Would we stand ready? Even if we never have to do it, would we stand ready to practice what Scripture has commanded us to practice for the sake of our holiness and our proclamation of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you're not a part of the church. And somebody brought you, it's around Christmas time, and you just thought you'd come. You did not anticipate hearing a sermon on church discipline. But even through sermons like this, the Holy Spirit can convict people of their sin. If you've never repented of your sin, if you're still trying to please God on your own, hear me, my friend, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. You'll never do it. No, but Jesus did it in your place. If you want to believe in that today, put your faith in Christ today. At the end of the service, I'll be with our Connect team just out here on the left in the lobby. Would you come find me? Let's talk about how you can follow Jesus with your life and become a part of his church. Strive for holiness alongside of us. So church, I invite you now to stand with us as we sing.